0: Welcome to the Gas Street Podcast. Our vision as a church is to be light for the city. We really hope you enjoy this message. Absolutely great to be here. That was an awkward moment. Tim said, why don't you go and stand on the stage? I'm like, won't that be a bit awkward? She hasn't introduced me yet. It's like, no, 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 do it. So I stand on stage and feel incredibly awkward. Probably you are thinking, that's weird. Why is he standing on stage? Because Tim told me to. Um, it's an absolute joy to be here. This is one of my favourite churches on the planet. So it's an absolute joy to be in the room, let alone to, to preach. So I just want to say, love being with you. And what you guys are doing is incredible. And the ripple effects of what happens here at Street is being felt far and wide across the UK and far beyond. I want to teach this morning about your vision statement, which is to be a light for the city. If this is day one on your journey at Gas Street, I think that's the vision statement, by the way, to be a light for the city. And I want to look at the role of Scripture in that journey of being a light for the city. Hopefully some slides are going to appear on the screen. There we go. So let's start with this text. This is Psalm 119 that says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to the mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your Word, Scripture, it's a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. If you want to be a light for the city, your relationship with Scripture really matters. Now before we press on, I want to talk about primary school. I don't know how many of you can remember day one of primary school. Just put your hand in the air if you can remember day one. Not many. I didn't think there would be many. But I bet some of you have photographic evidence, right? Somewhere there exists a photo of day one on your journey. Do you want to see day one on Tim's journey? I know you do. Let's just try that one more time. Do you want to see day one on Tim's journey? Yeah, you do. This is day one on Tim's journey. Um, What an extraordinary moment. Three quick observations. One, excitement levels were low. Can can you see that? Secondly, rocking a mini skirt, which I respect. (laughs) And, and, and thirdly, just the size of his head. I don't know whether it's the, the angle of the camera, but, but anyway, that was day one. What does day one of primary school have to do with Scripture? Well, I wanna take you back to the first century and the education system that was present in the day of Jesus. Primary school was called Betz um, which means house of the book. So when a young child started Betz they were gonna go on a journey, and over the next few years, they were gonna learn the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And when they completed Betsefer, they would have memorised the Torah by heart. How incredible is that? The capacity of the mind to memorise text. So they had to memorise the text by heart um, by the time they completed Betsefer. But day one was a really special day. So when you rocked up at primary school on day one, your teacher would hand you a slate. Now on that slate, You were going to learn the Hebrew alphabet and you were going to develop the building blocks so you could learn to read and write so eventually you could learn the Torah and memorise Torah. But before you began the journey, you were given the slate and your teacher would pour honey onto the slate. Task one is you've got to lick the slate clean. How cool would that have been? Thanks, sir. And then you would begin the journey of learning the alphabet, learning to read and write, learning the Torah. Now imagine what that would do to your imagination. So listen to some of these texts in Ezekiel chapter three. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving to you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Mouth you see in the imagination of the Jewish people, they loved the Torah. These were words of life, words that were sweet and precious to them. Listen to these words, um, Joshua one 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it, in other words, chew on it, like memorize it, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. Now again, I said part of meditation is repetition, that you memorise chunks of text. Now the idea of memorising the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that's extraordinary. But it's extraordinary how much we can memorise when we really set our minds to it. So let me rewind the clock, 10 years. Our first son, as a toddler, he fell in love with a book called The Gruffalo. Anyone, anyone read, familiar with The Gruffalo? Now literally every night, Dad, can we read The Gruffalo? Hey, he had a high pitched voice. Um, and it was like, yeah, okay, let's read The Gruffalo. Next night, can we read The Gruffalo? Fine, next night, can we read The Gruffalo? And after a while you're like, Can we read another book? Just for my own sanity, can we read another book? But we just kept on reading the Gruffalo, right? Now, 10 years on, the Gruffalo's just gone deep into my mind and imagination, yeah? The Gruffalo said that no Gruffalo should ever set foot in the deep, dark wood. Why not, why not? Because if you do, the big, bad mouse will be after you. I met him once, said the Gruffalo. I met him a long, long time ago. What does he look like? Tell us, Dad. Is he terribly big and terribly bad? I can't quite remember, the Gruffalo said. And then he thought for a minute and scratched his head. The big bad mouse is terribly strong and his scaly tail is terribly long and his eyes are like pools of terrible fire and his terrible whiskers are tougher than wire. I'll stop there. (laughs) Now that's six months of reading to my child the story three nights a week or so. Now imagine if you're devouring scripture Imagine if you're feasting on the Word of God. Listen to this, Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it, feasts on it, chews on it day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. You see, in the Jewish imagination, as they feast on the text, they know that this is the pathway to living life well. It's the pathway towards prosperity. Final text, then, Jeremiah 15. He says, When your words came, what did Jeremiah do? He didn't just read them. That's me eating them. He ate them, he took a bite from them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. They just fell in love with scripture like honey to the lips. They delighted in the law of God. You see, whenever you read scripture, I don't know what your rhythm is, whether it's you wake up and you've got like five minutes or like 15 minutes, or maybe it's just one simple verse you read before the day gets going. Here's the reality. There are two things happening when you open up your Bible. This is why there's, there's such distractions. The enemy doesn't want you to open up your Bible because when you do open up the Bible, you have the Spirit of God and you have the Word of God. Now, if you know the Hebrew story, the creation story, God speaks, he says, let there be light and there is, So you've got God speaking the Word of God and you've got the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. In other words, whenever God speaks, whenever the Spirit of God is present, there is a guarantee there'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. It might be early in the morning and you're just reading a simple verse and you don't feel like much is happening in that moment. And yet there's a promise from scripture when you open up the text and the spirit of God is present, there'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. We've got to invest ourselves in reading scripture. But it's more than just a lamp to our feet. The word of God is a lens through which we see the world around us when bees Father, my father-in-law tragically died a few years ago. He went on a walk. He was on holiday in Wales. He went for a walk to have a quiet time. He had a heart attack and was found dead by a farmer. His Bible was open at Psalm 63. What a precious Psalm. He was having time with God as he went to be with God. But it was so sudden. It was such a shock that the rest of the family, we drove down to walk. Wales we were traumatized we had a few days together trying to process what had taken place and we all responded differently in our grief and in our shock my brother-in-law Paddy I noticed what he did is that he found Nick's glasses his dad's glasses and he was wearing them around the house throughout the day and I don't know if you've tried wearing somebody else's glasses when they have prescription glasses. In other words, not just a fashion accessory. And I know some of you have those glasses. You don't need them, but you look great. Well done. Um, but, but when you take on somebody's glasses and, and there's prescription glasses, you put them on and you're like, what? What is wrong with you? I, I can hardly see anything. But he just pressed on through and he was wearing Nick's glasses all around the house. And I said to Paddy, I don't quite get it. We're like, why are you wearing Nick's glasses? And this was his response. He said, I just want to see the world through my father's eyes. I just want to see the world as Nick saw the world. What a beautiful thing when we open up the scriptures, there's an opportunity to take a set of glasses to see the world as our Father sees the world. What an extraordinary invitation. Now we're going to make a gear change from theology to neuro-linguistic programming. Stick with me. Don't (laughs) dial out. Do not dial out. So this is how worldviews shape perceptions. In other words, worldviews they're like a lens through which we see and interpret the world around us. And this is neurolinguistic programming then. Basically, you have reality. All around us, there are three billion bits of data. Your brain is processing so much. You're aware of the person on your left and the person on your right. The guy behind you that, is, that has a dry, continuous cough. You're aware of what's happening on screen and, and the lighting. Some of you are thinking, Pete, I haven't seen him for a while. Has he lost a little bit of weight? Thank you so much. There's so much. Going on, street noise. It's too much for you to process. So, what do you do? You do begin a processing journey. It goes through the senses. In other words, what you can taste, touch, feel, smell, and hear. But then you have these filters that are added. Um, We generalize, we delete, we distort. We make generalizations. This is happening in nanoseconds, by the way. Let me give you an example. If you've been bitten by a dog, um, you will have made a generalization that dogs aren't safe. So if you walk to work in the morning, you are going to spot every single dog on the journey, right? You're going to be crossing roads. You're just going to be um, hypervigilant, aware of every single dog. If you've not been bitten by a dog, you are going to spot the really aggressive dogs, the really big ones, and the really cute dogs. And everything else in between, you're going to delete that. You don't need that data. It's not interesting to you. So there might be dozens of dogs that pass you, but you don't even notice it. So we generalise, we delete, and we also distort the data so that it fits in with our worldview, so that it makes sense of what we want the world to look like. And once you've done that journey, you're left with 100 bits of data. How extraordinary is that? The ability of the, of the brain to take 3 billion bits of data and to narrow it down to 100 bits that are really helpful to you. This is why, by the way, at a crime scene, the police are looking for more than just one eyewitness. The police are looking for multiple eyewitnesses because they need more than just 100 bits of data. They want multiple witnesses so they can get a, a sense of what was really taking place. Now, this happens when we come to Scripture. You've got biblical reality, what Paul or whichever writer was actually trying to communicate into the context in which he was writing. So you've got biblical reality and then we have this filtering process. And let's be really honest, we come to the text with a pre-existing worldview, often a Western or a secular worldview. So we begin to sort of interpret what's going on and what we're left with is our perceived biblical reality. And there can often be a huge gap between biblical reality, 3 billion bits of data, and our perceived reality, 100 bits of data. We basically try and manipulate what's in front of us. So what happens is we come to the text like this and we begin to read it through these filters that we have in place. And what do we find? We find ourselves in the text. The Word becomes a mirror. We begin to read and and we impose our agenda, our worldview on the text. We're like, oh, geez, I love that Jesus. He's a lot like me, slightly better, but a lot like me. And this is how we end up with a white European Jesus depicted in art and in our imagination because we came to the text with a pre-existing worldview and we began to read the stories of Jesus. And this Jesus had our political preferences and our priorities and we I I like that. Yes, I would have done that too. And we end up with a Jesus made in our own image. Listen to these words then of Voltaire who said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favour ever since. Right, that's what happens when we come to the text with our worldview and we find what we really want in the text and we use it to justify our own mindsets. Is there a better way to read the scripture? The answer is yes, by the way. Some of you went blank. There is a better way to read the scripture and the better way is to come to scripture, not just with a worldview, but for a worldview. We come to the text and basically say, God, I'm not seeing clearly right now. I'm not seeing the world as you see the world. So can you just give me a fresh set of lenses so I can understand your created order? So I wanna start by looking at the worldview of Eden. Genesis 1 and 2 is a worldview creating text. That's why it's the beginning of our scriptures. In the story of Eden, we get a vision for human flourishing. Life as God created it to be lived. And the vision we get is of freedom and abundance and Adam and Eve running around in this garden, naked, unashamed, living the dream. Right, That's the vision we get from the beginning. But what we need to know is that this vision of abundance, this vision of freedom is very different to the vision of freedom we get in the secular culture that surrounds us. So I want to talk about the principle of first mention. We're going to unpack this word freedom. What does it mean biblically speaking? We probably know what it means culturally according to a secular mindset. Think of the word we often use when we talk about freedom, autonomy. We want to be autonomous. Now autonomy is a compound word, two words shoved together to create a new word. Auto meaning self, nomos meaning law. Autonomy is a law unto yourself. Like no restrictions, you call cool the shots you submit to. No one you submit to, nothing, you're a law unto yourself. In terms of culture right now, that's how people understand freedom. But biblically, what does it look like to be truly free? Well, here's the principle of first mention then. If you want to understand what a word means biblically, you go back to the first time it's ever used in Scripture and its first use, its first mention will dictate meaning. So rabbis in the early centuries, when they wanted to get this biblical worldview, they would regularly use this principle of first mention. So let's look at the first mention of the word freedom to understand what freedom looks like, biblically speaking. And we're here in Genesis chapter two. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, here it is, you are free. Beautiful. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. What's the biblical understanding of freedom? It isn't the absence of boundaries. It's the right boundaries in place. It's living life with abundance in the presence of God, with his parameters in place. Not creating your own parameters, not the absence of parameters, living with God's parameters in place. In other words, biblically speaking, freedom comes through submission to God. Now the idea of submission being part of freedom, in terms of with our secular understanding, you're like, what? That doesn't make sense. It makes sense in the kingdom of God. It makes sense in the biblical narrative. So let's look at some examples then. This is Paul writing a letter to the church in Philippi. Now, Paul is writing this letter from prison. Right, he's in prison in Rome as he writes this letter. And the book is really about freedom and joy. Historically, it's been known as the epistle of joy because he's constantly talking about joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And I'll say it again, rejoice. It's in this letter that Paul says, I found the key to contentment. Remember, he's writing it in prison. He says, I found the key to contentment. So this is a letter about freedom, joy, and human flourishing. But notice the beginning. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Greek word servants there, doulos, could be translated slave. In other words, I found freedom. I'm in chains, but I found true freedom by serving Jesus, submission to Christ Jesus. That, that's a picture of freedom in the kingdom of God, submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Let's look at another example, Ephesians 5 and 6. This will be uncomfortable reading. Um, so submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the Greek word submit is hupotasso. Let's just learn a bit of Greek together. So after three, we're going to say it. Hupotasso. One, two, three. Hupotasso. Didn't that feel great? Didn't that feel great? So hupotasso, and compound word hupo meaning under or underneath, tasso meaning to order. So tasso is to order yourself beneath. In other words, to put others first. So Paul says tasso to one another out of reverence for Christ as part of our worship to Christ. And then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, some of us read this, we're like, oh my goodness, generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort. I don't quite know what to make of this text, generalize, delete, distort. Right? What if we didn't freak out? Well, what if we didn't freak out and just slowed things down and just looked at the text and remembered that the key verse here, the overarching verse is like, tasso" to one another. Like, order yourselves beneath one another. And he says, wise tasso to your husbands. Right? But then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does giving yourself up for someone sound like? It sounds a lot like tasso to me. Now you've got to understand how incredible this. In the first century, for Paul to say, wives, submit to your husband's standard. But for him to say, husbands, you need to tasso to your wives. That's the beginning of a revolution. That's the beginning of a revolution. The revolution is called the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and he says, kids, I want you to hoop a tasso to your parents. That's standard. But then he says, dads, fathers and, and mothers, we could um, sort of like include. He says, I want you to hoop a tasso to your kids. Woo! In the context of the first century, to say to parents, hupotasso to your kids. That's the beginning of a revolution right there. It's called the kingdom of God. And then he says, Slaves, you know, who patasso to your master's standard, but then he says, Masters, do the same to your slaves. In other words, who patasso that's the beginning of a revolution in the first century, this was like mind-blowing. This is the kingdom of God beginning to break in. Key verb, who The way to human flourishing is to submit to God's vision for what it means to be. Human. That is extraordinary. Let's look at the example of Jesus. Now, Jesus, if you were to look at a motto for his ministry, let's try this one on for size. He says, I only do what I see my Father doing. What does that sound like? That sounds like Hupatasso to me. He says, I only speak the words that he gives me to speak. That sounds like Cooper Tasso to me. And all of this is building towards a climactic moment in the Gospels. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus utters seven words that change the course of human history. I would say this moment in the garden is a hinge point, not just biblically, but in human history. Without these seven words, there is no cross. And without these seven words, there is no resurrection. And without these seven words, there is no outpouring of the Spirit. And without these seven words, there is no birthing of the church. And without these seven words, there is no gift. Gastry. Anyone interested in the seven words? I was trying to build that up to a climactic moment. Felt like you weren't with me. Anyone excited by the seven words? There we go. That's what I was longing for. That's what I was longing for. Um, here's the seven words. Not my will be done, but yours. Jesus says these words three times in the garden. Like, that means they're incredibly important. He basically says, Father, can you take this cup of suffering from me? Like, does it have to be this way? He's sweating blood. That's chronic anxiety right there. And then he says, but not my will be done, but yours. Is there another way? Not my will be done, but yours. Surely not my will be done, but yours. And from those seven words, we have the cross, the resurrection, the outpouring of the spirit, the birthing of the new creation, the birthing of the church, right? Everything follows through hupotasso, submission. This is a biblical vision for human flourishing. We all wanna thrive. We all wanna do life well. We're all searching for a story. The biblical invitation is to submission. And through Tasso to the will and the way of God, you find freedom. This, by the way, is how you smash the mirror. Like When we come to the text with a pre-existing worldview and we just, oh, hello there, and we find ourselves in the text, you smash the mirror when you basically say, not my will be done, but yours. Not my will be done, but Yours, and when you smash the mirror, this is what you discover that the word becomes a window. Rather than being a mirror, it's a window into the age to come, into the new creation. You begin to see things as they were intended to be in Eden and as they will be once more when Christ returns. This vision of human flourishing when there's no death, no grief, there's no crying, there's no pain. This is a window in which you see what is to come, but there's something more beautiful. You get to step through the window and begin to experience a foretaste of what is to come by the Spirit. Here's the catch it's a smallish window, right? It's quite hard to get through the window. We might say it's a narrow door or a narrow gate. To get through the window, you have to bend down. Do you remember as a kid when you got locked out of your house and you had to break back in? Or when you just broke into somebody else's house, depending on your upbringing. But there's a moment when you're like, oh, can I get through there? Yeah, I bat myself. And then you begin to sort of climb through the door. You have to bow down, right? That's a posture of submission. The posture we're most familiar with in the church when it comes to submission is kneeling down. In other words, bowing down. Not my will be done, but yours. But when you approach this window and and you bow down, you step in, you realise that there's something so much more beautiful available. You can't get through the window without bowing. Because on the other side of the window, there's only one King and it isn't you. And it isn't me. And on the other side of the window, there's only one person's will that really matters. And it's not you. And it's not me. It's the will of our Father. It's the kingdom of God. Let me close with a story then. This is the story of a guy called Hein Fam. Now, Hein Pham was a translator in Vietnam. There was a famous American evangelist that used to visit Vietnam and, and go on preaching tours. And hind Pham would travel as his interpreter, his translator. And these two guys became really close friends. Now, when the American evangelist had to head home, and this is in the 1970s, a little while later, the communist regime kicked in, stepped into power, and they imprisoned Hein Pham. They basically believed that he was working for the American trying to undermine the communist regime. So they imprisoned him. And for the next months and years, they brutally tortured him. They went through a process of brainwashing him, trying to crush his faith and feed him Marxist ideology. And he went through years and years of brainwashing, brutal torture and treatment. And after years of this, he gets to the point, he's like, I actually can't do this anymore. I don't know how to stay faithful to God. I don't know where God is in the midst of my suffering. I can't continue. I'm not sure prayer is working. I've lost any sense of hope. So he makes a decision, I'm giving up on God. And the next day, it's the first day in decades that he hasn't begun the day with prayer, turning his face heavenwards. So he ignores that and he goes about his job. His job is basically to clean out the latrines, the toilets. And he's doing that job and he noticed in the toilet, there's a piece of paper with some English text on it. Now the prison guards are watching him, so he very subtly puts it in his pocket, carries on with the job, later gets back to his cell and he opens up this piece of paper, right? And he has to clean the excrement off the paper and clean the urine off the paper. And then he began reading this English text that basically says this, Romans eight twenty-eight. Mm-hmm. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the day after he gave up on God, wakes up the next morning and realised God didn't give up on him, nothing can separate him from the love of God. The next day, he went back to the toilets, did his job, found a bit more paper, put in his pocket. The next day, found a bit more paper, put in his pocket. Discovered that the prison guards were using the scriptures to wipe their backsides. It's part of the brainwashing process. But each day, Hein found would go to the latrines, find a bit more text, get home, remove the excrement, remove the urine and read the text. After 17 years of not talking to his buddy, the evangelist, he's freed from prison. And one of the first things he does, he phones up his friend. This evangelist guy had often wondered what happened to Hein How come I've never heard from him? How come he dropped off the radar? And then he hears the story of the last 17 years. Having heard the story, he said to his friend, I just don't know how you got through. I just don't know how you made it. And this was Hindfam's response. Scripture was a lifeline. Scripture was a lifeline. The Word was a lamp to my feet. I I realised that I could feast on the Word of God and I could find abundance. So I, I get that the Apostle Paul could talk to the church in Philippi from prison in chains and say, I found the key to contentment. I found the path to a really joyful life. It's the Word of God living and active in my life. I don't know what your rhythm for reading Scripture is. I don't know if you're like very new to faith and haven't found one. Like, like Why don't you start small Just get a devotional book, a few verses each day and then begin to build it up. Here's my encouragement, when you open up the Scriptures, it's a promise that there'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. And as you read the Scriptures, rather than just bringing your pre-existing worldview and trying to impose it on the text, what if you just said, not my will be done, but yours? As you do that, what if you begin to bow down, step through a window into a wide open space? Do you know what that wide open space is? It's the kingdom of God. It's the will of God. Through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit, all of this we read in Scripture. Through Jesus, we can step into abundance. But only as we say, not my will be done, but Yours. Should we stand? <clears throat> Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we've opened up your Scriptures. We know that your Spirit is present in the room. And whatever we might be feeling, we know the promise is that there's gonna be an explosion of light and life. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We repent for where we've chosen the path of autonomy, thought that being a law unto ourselves would bring about this vision of human flourishing. But we, we repent and we turn to you. And here's my encouragement. When you're ready, just uh, utter these seven words that changed the course of human history and seven words that could change the course of your life. But you gotta mean them. It's gotta come from a deep place in your heart that you back up with your will, that you spend the rest of your days trying to actually live out. my will be done but yours some of you might not be ready this morning or if you're watching this this evening you might not be ready but others in the room you just know this is a moment just to come back to the Father to declare again I submit I rank myself beneath I order you above your will be done in my life Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Just feel led in my heart just to pray for those that in this last season, you felt the darkness closer than maybe ever before and you know some of that has been you've just, you've pursued your own will your own agenda you've just been going after whatever the big dream was there hasn't been much not my will be done but yours but there's a darkness that you feel is close and in this moment of repentance I just want to pray that God would break the power of darkness that the light Penetrate your innermost being and bring about abundance. So Holy Spirit, come. We know that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is freedom. If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. So we declare freedom in this place. Lord, we pray that you would shatter darkness. Would you break the back of any darkness that's been hovering over, hanging over people, that's weighed people down, that's crushed people in spirit. Would you break the power of it now? you lead us into the light the light of your presence Holy Spirit We all know the drill, the front isn't more holy, it's not that it's been prayed over more but there's something about us stepping into the invitation of the Father, not just being passive, saying God I, I want to move towards you using our bodies to respond with our wills to say yes and, and here's what I want to create space for those that you just know the spirits at work in such a way that you want to respond by saying Yes, not my will be done, but yours. That could be a career decision. It could be a relationship. It could be a big decision that you're wrestling over. You don't know what to do. And before you even know the answer, you want to say, God, would you lead and guide me? Not my will be done, but yours. It might be just a more general thing of like, I just want to submit again. I want to bend the knee, submit to the will of the Father. But the third thing I want to go after is, Those that, yeah, you've just experienced a greater measure of darkness. I feel like for some it's related to insomnia and anxiety that's massively interrupting your sleep. I feel like God wants to break the power of that and bring peace. So if you're in one of those three groups, either there's a decision, you just want to come and submit and say, God, do whatever you want to do lay my life before you or it's just a far more general Lord I just choose this moment to say again you are king over every part of my life I just want to submit or if, if you want to step into the light that God has for you then could you just come to the front just like take this moment to push your way out of the rose and to say yes to what the father is stirring in this room by the spirit that's it just push your way out That's it. Just push your way out. And if we can invite some of the team to come and pray, to come and lay on hands. As we lay on hands, all we're doing is we're fanning into flame that which the Lord is doing. So you don't need to pray long, lengthy prayers over people. Just a hand on the shoulder and say, come Holy Spirit. And then see what the Spirit begins to do. We're going to need quite a few more team.